custodians of the planet, acknowledge and pays respect to the past, present and future traditional custodians and elders of this nation and the continuation of cultural, spiritual and educational practices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. with Custodians of the Planet. I'm Denise Yildiz. Custodians of the Planet brings consciousness to planetary challenges and looks at different perspectives regarding the tensions and harmony of human activities in a changing climate. After a long absence, it's nice to be back. Today, we will explore a notion called bioregionalism that is an essential component of cultural and social transformation. We quite often read or hear about the necessity for change, considering climate change and the alarming rates of declining biodiversity. But frankly, we don't know how to change. And I'm talking about long-term, sustained change not short-run bursts that sputter out before real change happens. Changing our behavior, or on a larger scale, changing a system, is a self and community engineering challenge. We have to make commitments. And to me, bioregionalism is a fundamental concept. I think it can be a commitment tool too. To learn more about bioregionalism today, Joe Brewer joins us. Joe is a change strategist, cognitive scientist, and a complexity researcher. He is the executive director of the Center for Applied Cultural Evolution and has worked with a variety of not-for-profits, social impact businesses, and government agencies to apply insights from the cognitive, behavioral, and evolutionary sciences to larger-scale social problems. Joe, welcome to Custodians of the Planet. It's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, it is lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. I came across your name when I was researching bioregionalism and then found the platform Earth Regenerators, which you're a founder of. So can you tell us a bit about yourself and about this platform? What has been your journey to be where you are and what is that you do? Well, the Earth Regenerators platform is a story of only my recent history, going back a little more than a year, back to December of 2019, before this big pandemic came along and shook things up. And, um, and I actually would like to start there instead of going back further, because what happened was, I thought it was, it was December 16th, I started writing a book manuscript and I wrote uh, 14 chapters in the first two weeks. Wow. And the reason this happened was because I uh, had been thinking about and studying and working with things for about 15 years that basically gave me a, a pretty holistic sense of how precarious our planetary situation is currently, mm. how few realistic options we actually have how many people are in some form of denial or uh, avoidance mm. of the seriousness of our situation. And that the only way to really deal with the predicament we're in is to be honest with ourselves about where we are. So I started writing a book called The Design Pathway for Regenerating Earth and very quickly felt that this should not wait to be published. And I shouldn't concern myself to make money off of it or build my reputation or any of the things that people would do by being an author. Because the book is um, my best understanding of the only viable way that humans can avoid extinction in the next 50 to 200 years, which we are on a crash course with at the moment. And so this is a very, very situ serious situation. And so what happened was I decided to give the manuscript away. Mm -hmm. I put out a call on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn saying, who would like to join a study group to read the manuscript of my book? And we called the study group Earth Regenerators. Flash forward six months and we passed the 2000 member mark. 
So there was something about having an open access, free design school for exploring how to regenerate the earth mm. while taking seriously the state of the crisis that we're in without offering any false hopes and taking seriously how emotionally challenging it is to deal with the traumas and the grief and the mm. loss and the pain of what we're going through. And so that is the story of Earth Regenerators, which has now blossomed into so much more. But I'll, I'll wait to speak more about that because I think we'll touch on it later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. I mean, I'm also part of that platform. And, and I think the first feeling I got was just like, Oh, I'm not alone. And before we delve deeper, I would like to clarify some terminology. Can you tell us what bioregionalism is based on your understanding? Yes, and I'll also say that if you really want to know what bioregionalism is, there are some key thinkers. And one of the best is a, a man named Peter Berg, who founded the Planet Drum Foundation. And he passed away about 10 years ago from San Francisco. Also, Gary Snyder is uh, quite a prominent writer of, about bioregionalism, both of them starting in the 1960s and 70s. And a present thinker is John Thackera from the UK. So just to know, there are others out there that are talking about this, and those are three that you can look at. But basically, I'll explain a bioregion by not talking about humans first, but instead talk about any living organism. Because basically, the word bioregion is like a biological region, if you take the two words that it comes from. So a biological region is all of the geographic space that is needed for the entire life system of an organism. So if you're a starfish, your bioregion is the intertidal zone where the waves come and go with the tide rising and the tide falling on the coastline. And the entire life system of the starfish, all of its food, its home, where it's able to reproduce and lay and have offspring and produce a, a next generation that is viable. All of this happens in this intertidal zone. So a bioregion is the aggregated area, the place for an entire life to be supported for a biological organism. Now for humans, a bioregion takes on an interesting form because of human culture. And so basically a human bioregion is a geographic area that is able to fully support a sustainable human culture. So for example, most hunter-gatherer societies that we know of in the last several thousand years lived within regional economies of extended trade networks. So they might've been in a river basin or on an island or a specific area of coastline where they'd have you know, houses or villages up and down the coast, or they'd have a nomadic pathway of following the weather systems and the migration of animals that they'd hunt. But they would have an entire life system bounded to an area that is the large place that you could say is the home of that human culture. So a bioregion is the region in which human beings could have an entire living economy that is able to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's one such approach and it illustrates a possible future wherein our models of economic and social governance are more localized democratic and self-sustaining but but one thing one thing strikes me and i don't i don't want to overlook starfish but when you talk about starfish it's really easy whereas us humans are really complex creatures and and drawing the boundaries the boundaries of bioregionalism it feels like it's in flux Add technology or social organization, like how do the families organize themselves? As if you look at anthropology research, it's very diverse. So it's not like bioregionalism is a recipe that's very simple. It's really to say any sustainable human culture must have its own biological region mm -hmm. because humans are biological organisms. Mm -hmm. So it's 
almost a self-evident truth when, sta- when stated in this way. Yeah, when you think, think that way, it feels more grounded because it starts with acknowledging we're part of this, this system and this planet. And what I'm particularly intrigued by this concept is, is the democratic and self-sustaining component of this concept. Can you please elaborate on that? Yeah, here I'm going to draw upon the research of a very important woman that more people need to know about. Her name is Eleanor Ostrom. She's a political scientist and the first woman to get the Nobel Prize in economics, which was in 2009, a little bit late economics. I mean, guys as in bro guys, get your act together. Because what Eleanor Ostrom studied was the political economy or the kind of set of governance and decision-making and management for how different human groups Mm -hmm. would manage common pooled assets. So a common pooled asset is like a grazing area for livestock or a river for fishing, Mm -hmm. some some physical area where people access and use that area together and need to make decisions and manage it in a collective way. And what she found in her research that got her the Nobel Prize was that there are eight criteria that are always met when human groups do this well. Now, I'm starting my answer in this way because the way that a bioregion works that achieves a kind of democracy is that the members of the region treat the region as a common pooled asset. It's Mm -hmm. landscapes shared in common. So they have to be able to identify with each other and have a shared identity and a shared purpose of maintaining the health of the ecosystems for that land. Mm -hmm. They need to have fair and fast conflict resolution. Uh, They need to have inclusive decision-making and they need to have other things as well. There are eight of them. And so the important thing to see here is that the only way to manage things effectively when people need to manage them together is to meet all of these criteria. And what that means for bioregions is they actually will never be sustainable unless humans cooperate within their bioregions to manage them for the well-being of the whole area. So it's like having a government for the territory. And when you have this, then you'll have things like, oh, these people up in the mountains, they really need to be able to come down when the seasons are changing and access the river and then get to this other forest on the other side. And the people living in that area need to cooperate with them for this to happen or else um, they're not going to have a sustainable way of, say, having extensive trade or intermarrying with each other or the other things they might do. So they need to have governing councils that represent the entire area. So this is a vital piece of bioregionalism, is local autonomous governance managed by the members of the territory itself. Hmm. It, it makes more sense to me. Thank, thanks for that clarification. And also, I, I think it's really exciting to see the idea of decentralizing social systems or energy. You know, I feel like it's, it's becoming a thing. Let's let's move on to something a bit more individualistic. And lately I've been obsessed with, with this notion of the self and maybe it's a meaning crisis in the midst of pandemic, but I, I wonder what you think. How does knowledge of place help us know the self? A funny thing that this guy, Peter Berg, that I mentioned a few minutes ago, he developed a lot of education materials for bioregionalism. And when he'd gather a group of students, he'd give them this very simple and embarrassing exercise. He'd give them a big piece of paper, have them draw a little circle in the middle and say, this is where you live. On this piece of paper, can you draw where your water comes from? And most people can't. Most people don't know where their water comes from. And so this embarrassing question where people realize they're kind of shocked. Like, how can I say I'm from this place? when I don't even know where my water comes from. Mm. And I absolutely depend on this water to be alive. I could not live here without that water. So it's this really shocking awareness of ignorance, how ignorant people have become of place. So connect that to identity. What does it mean to live in a place when you have no idea even where your water comes from, let alone what are the native species of plants, 
uh, what were the ancestral ways of, of growing and gathering food? Or what is a bioclimatic appropriate way to build a house where you gather the materials in a way that is you know, renewable and maintained by, by the environment? And so on and so forth, right? So, so this ability to answer basic questions about place reveals uh, to us that something very profound and that is quite obvious when stated, but isn't stated very often, which is that every human being alive today has more than 99% of their ancestral history. They lived as hunter-gatherers, which means the vast majority of history for every human being was to be bound to the culture of place. And yet after colonialism or after the rise of civilizations and empires and the rise of globalism, most of us have no idea where home is mm. because we're transplanted and displaced, conquered people where cultural genocide happened to our ancestors. So we do not remember our ancestors. So in a very deep way, most of us don't know what our identity is because we don't know where we're from. Whereas if you ask an indigenous person, they know exactly where they're from. It's that river, it's that rock, it's that mountain, it's the people of the bear clan or whatever. But for those of us who have lost that ancestry, we don't know who we are. And that's one of many reasons why we mindlessly consume all the products that are marketed to us, why so many of us have mental health problems. And we feel depressed, displaced, sh shiftless, and don't know our purpose. Sometimes yeah. we don't relate to our own families. So this is a very, very personal, like deeply intimate issue mm -hmm. of identity in place. It's got layers and layers to it. Yeah. What you said was, was really moving for me. And, and I feel like we're, we're lost and we don't know who we are really. And, and I feel like there's a suffering or pain where we try to compensate that or just like band-aid with, with consumerism and it's taking in various forms and shape. But then we're getting more disconnected with where we live. We're all trying to find meaning and trying to satisfy that gap or that that emptiness with with other things. And that's how we can distract ourselves instead of going back to our roots. Yeah, Peter Berg was a, uh, he did a lot of street theater in the, the beatnik days of the 60s. Really? I didn't know Very this. Good. <laughs> yeah, you're going to love reading his stuff. And like, he was really good at like, stand up comedy types of turns of phrases. Mm -hmm. And one thing he said was that most people in the global economy are residents. They reside in places. You go to the city for your job. But if you look at all other species, they're inhabitants. They inhabit. They live in a habitat. What it means to be an inhabitant is to be in and of a place. To be a resident is to be someone who lives there. And there's a profound difference between the two. And if we start to inhabit a place and search for identity in that exploration, we discover so many things about ourselves and we can fall in love. We can fall in love with the land and with ourselves in ways we didn't know was possible. So this idea of bioregionalism, as we can already see, we've only touched on a couple elements of it and it is so powerful. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And once we cultivated that knowledge of place and knowledge of self, then then what is regenerative culture and is there a relationship between bioregionalism and regeneration? Well, let me start by just giving a definition to regeneration mm -hmm. because um, regeneration is um, being actively turned into a greenwashing term right now. Like a lot of big agricultural companies. It's all over companies. the place, yeah. I know. And, and a lot of people are like, this is just the replacement for sustainability when sustainability was the replacement for the environment. The truth is this. Regeneration is a dynamic process of any living being. And when we understand this, that any living being has cycles of regeneration, 
where moment to moment, the body of the organism is reproducing the conditions of being alive, which we call homeostasis. Right? Your body right now is alive because you're breathing in air and the air is being circulated in your blood, pumped by your heart, which is providing the blood to the tissues and the tissues are either staying alive or they're breaking down and being replaced. And the skin tissue that you have is replaced every 30 days in a cycle of growing upward from the fatty sub subcutaneous tissue to the dead skin cells that flake off at the surface. And it's continually replenished. This dynamic pattern, which is beautifully named autopoiesis by two Chilean philosophers and scientists, Humberto, Humberto Maturana and Francisco Varela. Autopoiesis uh, is a great way to think of this. Poesis is the same Latin word for poetry. So autopoiesis is the self-created ability to self-express. I said, this is the dynamic signature of life, is the self-created ability to self-express. Living organisms express themselves into being every moment, and they also reproduce the conditions. So here's what I mean by that. There's a paramecium swimming around in water. What's it doing? It's doing chemotaxis. What is that? It's smelling in the water where there are higher concentrations of food, and it's going toward the food. So it is seeking out the context in which to reproduce its ability to be alive, to express its aliveness by eating, digesting, and excreting. So this dynamic process of reproducing the conditions of being alive is regeneration. It's generation of the ability to, to live over and over and over again until life breaks down which is called senescence in biology, which is when other things take those things and use their regenerative processes, like mushrooms that decompose wood. And so this regeneration process is super important to understand. It's not a buzzword. Mm. It's a dynamic capacity of aliveness. And when we're talking about that, so let me say that again, dynamic capacity of aliveness, the being of being alive. So what is a regenerative culture? It's a culture that has the dynamic capacity of aliveness. What is a regenerative economy? It's an economy that has the dynamic capacity to maintain itself as a healthy living system. And so this is why bioregionalism is the only definition of a regenerative economy. Because what is a bioregion? It's the whole life system defined as a geography for being alive. So the only regenerative economies are bioregional economies. There's no other option. Hmm. And so, and I'm not saying this as like the definition forces us to it. It's that the understanding of living systems shows us that this is a dynamic quality that only exists at the appropriate scale. You know, if your body tries to live in the size of your fingertip, you're gonna die really quickly. But if we throw you out into interstellar space between two stars, you're also gonna die really quickly. There's an appropriate scale for your life system. And as a human being, you need a mother that will hold you in her womb and give birth to you and nurture you. You'll need an extended family network to support your development and upbringing. You will need an expanded, uh, either extended family or cultural extended group that can teach you everything you need to know about how to gather food, how to build tools, how to live in a place. And all of those aspects of culture are regenerative culture. They are the aspects of the economy that enable the people to live. So if someone teaches you how to make a bow and arrow, or if someone teaches you how to harpoon fish, or someone teaches you how to gather medicinal plants, all of that knowledge is regenerative cultural knowledge because it allows you to live in a place. And so, um, so that's the relationship between regenerative culture and bioregionalism is that regeneration is this dynamic capacity to be alive. And any culture that has the dynamic capacity to be alive in a place by basically definition becomes a bioregion. Mm. Oh, wow. There's so much to take in. <laughs> I'll just, yeah, step by step. When you give that definition of regeneration, then I, I ask myself, then what, what does sustainability mean? Because that's also 
maintaining like and the ability of you mm-hmm. know yeah so there is i think like a nuance between them well let me take a shot at it sustainability is a byproduct of regeneration if your body is continually regenerating its aliveness you know you have homeostasis then you are sustaining your ability to be alive sustainability is a byproduct of regenerative processes the key thing to have in mind is that it's a dynamic web of interdependencies and when we understand that then sustainability is staying within a range of healthy parameters for that dynamic process to continue and so sustainability falls out but the reason that this gets confusing is we have words like sustainable development but because of the way that humans minds work, human minds work we have a conceptual model of economic development mm-hmm. that tells us certain normative things within an unsustainable culture there are a lot of unsustainable forms of development and so if we have a mental model of an unsustainable form of development yeah. then sustainable development becomes an oxymoron becomes a self-contradictory term and the way this is explained in evolutionary studies they have a name for it they call it an evolutionary mismatch mm. evolutionary mismatch is when some adaptive behavior or some adaptive capacity arose in an ancestral environment and then the environment changes but the people keep doing this thing that was adaptive and it becomes less and less adaptive and it becomes maladaptive and then it becomes harmful it becomes harmful because the environment changed. A good example of this is humans lived in ancestral environments where their only source of sugar was fruit or occasionally finding honey. So we evolved this insatiable desire for sugar and sweet things. Mm-hmm. So when people figured out how to synthesize high fructose corn syrup and use marketing and advertising to sell it to us as children, we had no biological defense because our evolutionary adaptation for desiring sweet things in this changed environment is toxic mm. not toxic because we desire sweet things it's toxic because the environment provides us way too many sweet things way too many and then we get diabetes or heart disease and so you see how this works this idea of an evolutionary mismatch works this way So when I look at sustainability in the context of a mismatch environment mm-hmm. meaning you try to do sustainable things in an environment where it is impossible to be sustainable. Yeah. So you depend on fossil fuel infrastructure to become sustainable. But fossil fuel infrastructure by definition is non-renewable. And so it's unsustainable. So how do you build a sustainable society using fossil fuel infrastructure? It's not that you can't absolutely it's that you might want to be suspicious because you're in an environment that is very unsustainable. So whatever everyone thinks is normal in that culture mm. is a set of unsus- unquestioned assumptions that are carried into the idea of development. And so that's where it gets really complex and messy is in that space. Yeah. Yeah. I also feel like because obviously we're humans and it's really these all these concept are really human centric so when we talk about sustainability it's only like the human side of the sustainability or the sustainable development and i was lucky to be a part of a project um in pacific islands where we are trying to explore um ways to re-indigenize the place and in like the decision making and how to make sure the community the first nations can be a bit more part of it So I was basically looking for what sustainable development means for these people and obviously there's like a language barrier and other things but not in Pacific Islands but I think it was in Toronto if I'm not wrong an elder explained in a way like he said something like to me we don't have the exact translation translation for sustainable development but to me it's how to give back and i think that's what we are missing especially in this westernized mindset it's we will just grow and you know grow and grow and yeah yeah let's be cancer cuz cancer <laughs> always ends well um what's interesting is uh one of my good friends is a, a guy named michael dowd 
who started as an evangelical preacher and then grew through his own personal changes to become an evangelist for the science of evolution. And now he really has studied a lot of sustainable and unsustainable cultures. And he has a really simple way of saying it. There are pro-future and there are anti-future cultures. Pro-future cultures are never anthropocentric, mm. never. And what's been found is that and there's, there's a lot of anthropological research behind this finding. It's sort of like a cross-cultural survey. Oh, and my daughter has arrived, so there may be some really adorable background noise. Um, what, uh, what he discovered was that every sustainable culture in history has a pro-future orientation around key ecological relationships. Mm -hmm. So think of it this way. The river is a person and you treat the river as sacred, and you care for the river. Now, why do you do that? Because your life depends on the river. And that is a pro-future orientation. And so this ability to give human-like relationship to non-human nature is the ability to care for the future of that part of the larger environment. So sacred relationships with the more than human world is essential. There is no sustainable culture in history that didn't have it. Yeah. So, um, so this is one of those sort of surprising things is that all regenerative cultures that have existed in the past had sacred relationships to the life systems that were larger than human, mm. which is the indigenous life ways. Yeah. Do you think, can we return back to living within... I don't want to say the limits, but like within the limits, where like in the harmonious way, and and if so, how? Well, one thing is to understand a, a key concept from ecology called carrying capacity, mm. which is basically the capacity of the environment to support a population of some organism. So, for humans, how many humans could live in this landscape? Now, notice that the answer to that question depends on technology. It depends on background climate. It depends on a lot of things. So it's not a fixed number. But one of the key ways of measuring carrying capacity is to measure something called ecological load. Ecological load is like the per capita consumption multiplied by the, the population, which is what the ecological footprint does. So if you look at the ecological footprint, the typical Australian has this much and there are this many Australians. The typical US citizen consumes this much. You know that, so that combination of, of consumption per individual multiplied by the population mm -hmm. will tell you a lot about whether you're within the carrying capacity or whether you're an ecological overshoot. Yeah. yeah. And the, the difference between those two is whether or not the environment's regenerative capacities can maintain the population indefinitely. So there's a regenerative capacity of the entire landscape and that regenerative capacity will tell you what the healthy human population should be with a particular set of assumptions about consumption, about technology and about social organization. Now notice that almost never do we do sustainable development in this way. Almost never do we start with carrying capacity and ecological load and then ask, where are we? Where we generally find, oh crap, we're in ecological overshoot. Maybe we've been in eco ecological overshoot for a hundred years already. How is it possible to be in overshoot? Well, because we can use non-renewable resources and we can deplete and degrade our environments, mm. which means a population crash happens or people move from one place to another, which in human terms means a different population's population crashes because we invade and kill them. <laughs> and so you see how this works, right? Um, this is ecology applied to humans because it applies to all living things. If we think this way, what we can do is we can start to track the regenerative capacities for landscapes and then try to design life ways, ways of living in those landscapes. So for example, there's a really interesting measurement from satellite remote sensing, where they take satellite data and measure reflectances from the Earth's surface, and it's called net primary production. Net primary production is the total amount of uh, photosynthesis that happens for the entire surface of the Earth. 
how much sunlight coming and hitting the Earth's surface is being turned into plant bodies. And there are various ways you can calculate from there, going up the food chain or going across the food web, how much complexity of life, how much biodiversity can be sustained with the net primary production. This is a pretty basic, like foundational measure for the entire planet. Mm -hmm. So if we start with a measure like this, it's based in physics, chemistry, and biology all together. And we say, what does that limit tell us? One thing it might tell us is that if we've done deforestation, we've lowered net primary production. So if we plant more plant matter, more trees and bushes and shrubs, we actually increase net primary production, which means we're growing our economy, but only to the limit of the amount of photosynthesis that's possible. So the limits are self-organized. They're organized by the ecosystems themselves mm. and they're not fixed. At least they're not rigidly fixed. They more like have ranges for parameters. And I'm just saying this to really show that you can have very concrete ways of thinking about regenerative culture that are grounded in how the real world actually works. And when you start there, you're gonna to have to deal with some very sober and disturbing facts about the world. Mm -hmm. Like for example, we are in ecological overshoot at a planetary scale and have been for at least hundred years. So there's a crash coming, but the crash for the non-humans already happened. It was the biodiversity loss of the last hundred years. Yeah, yeah. And so that realization is painful to take in, but that's a good place to start seeing what it means to regenerate from where we are, which is we've degraded a lot of our ecosystems so we can restore them. We can regenerate them. We can grow their capacities to regenerate themselves. For example, if you dig water retention systems, you get more water cycling in the ground, which means there's more water available for microorganisms and fungi, which means there's more ability to grow plant roots, and therefore you can grow more plant biomass. So you can increase the biomass of the whole thing by changing the way water flows on a piece of land. So once we understand that we're in a place of degradation of landscapes combined with overshoot of human consumption, yeah. and human population, then we know what to do. We increase the regenerative capacities of landscapes. That's what we do. When I think about designing a culture, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Can you really design culture or can you just change that culture? How does that work? Well, let me give an example of designing a culture. Let's say that you are with a new group of students starting university together and you go through orientation. And orientation tells you how to use the dormitories. What are you doing? You're learning the culture of a new place. And if you invite the students to participate and say, what are the house rules in, on this floor of the dormitory? And you're inviting participation in the creation of culture. So designing culture might sound really scary and it can be if it's done really badly, but it also is just what normal humans do. And what's really interesting is that um, there's this convergence of a lot of research in the social sciences that shows us how humans are psychologically and physically healthy mm -hmm. and what it means to be in effective and functioning groups. And there's a lot that's known about this. Like what I said earlier about Eleanor Ostrom for managing a commons, mm -hmm. every human group is a commons. So you can apply her design principles, those eight criteria, you can apply them to your group. And you might notice in our group, we don't make decisions in an inclusive way. So there are problems in our group. Yeah. By the way, your group could be you and your boyfriend, or it could be five people ordering pizza together. So what's interesting is if you are aware of how the culture works, and you notice that some um, aspects of a healthy group are missing, then you can facilitate them. So let's say you got five friends and you're ordering pizza together, but you don't have an inclusive decision-making process. One person's like basically saying, I want this and I don't care what anyone else says. And you as someone who knows about how to facilitate groups, you're like, you know, maybe we should actually make the decision this way. What does everyone think about that? And try and get a consensus on the way of making a decision. What you've just done is intentionally change the culture of that group. Mm. So the design of culture is the conscious and intentional engagement with how your culture is behaving in any given moment. Like I'm part of this group, 
how are we doing? And how could I change the way we are in a visible and conscious way? And that's the design of culture. Basically democratizing the process, making it ex- inclusive to everyone to have their say. Yeah, like you might have this group of five friends and one of them's like, but I'm allergic to cheese. And everyone's like, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't get pizza then. You know, and um, one of them might say, let's go to this restaurant that has pizza, but has these great salad options. And so what happens is someone can leave the group because they don't actually align with what the group is doing, Mm -hmm. which is part of the design of culture. Or the group could change its purpose. Like our purpose isn't to get the right pizza. Now our purpose is to get the meal that everyone's happy with. Yeah. And if you change the purpose, then you just change the culture of the group. So what's interesting about this is that you could see how this could be manipulated, and it often is. But if it's done in a way that is transparent and inclusive of the members of the group, then it in- increases their engagement and empowers them. It makes them feel more able to take risks and be creative. It increases adaptivity creativity, innovation, all these things that are really good to have in a functioning group, simply because of the group dynamic, the way that people are relating to each other. So I find this idea of regenerating culture through the design of culture to be like profoundly important because what it does is it gives us the power to be culture instead of having us be like fish swimming in culture without knowing it's there. (laughs) And, and for our listeners, if they would like to create a regenerative culture in their lives and in, in a city life, maybe, um, and in their circles, then what can they focus on and like where should they start with? Like, what would be the first step for them? Ah, the first step for them, I would suggest, comes from something called acceptance and commitment training, mm. which is part of a framework called pro-social. So... Go look up prosocial.world and you'll learn all about this. But what acceptance and commitment training does is it gives you a set of simple tools to assess how well you live out your own values. So for example, if you make a list of people that you really admire and then write down the things about them you admire, oh, they're brave, they're honest, they're compassionate, they're generous. And then you think of people you really don't like, that you don't want to be like, oh, they're selfish, they're greedy, they're judgmental, they're closed-minded. And you make a list of those two things side by side. And then you ask yourself, honestly, how often am I like the list of aspirational goals? And how often am I like the list of things that I don't like? Mm. The key is to notice and accept. So it's called acceptance and commitment training because acceptance is about noticing and accepting that you're not living up to your best self. And then training, being committed to training, being committed to improving. And so this is the way to start. Mm -hmm. The way to start is to build the mindfulness practice of noticing when you are not behaving the way that you want to behave. And notice when you're behaving the way that you do want to behave. And what happens simply by noticing is your body's biofeedbacks will reinforce those behaviors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You'll do it yourself. Yeah, so it starts and with the start self to, and with our own behavior. Yeah, and you'll manage your own change of behavior. And you'll become more of the self you want to be. And then you'll start to notice that you feel empowered. And then you start changing things you don't like because you feel empowered and you're more confident. And so this is a beginning of a pathway to transformational change. And it starts with building an inner capacity to notice and accept how you really are moment to moment while committing to becoming a better person defined by you, (laughs) defined by what you consider to be a better person. I like that. Hello. (laughs) So cute. (laughs) She's really cute. (laughs) Such a good timing because we're seeing Joe's daughter right now. I wish everyone could see her. So I would like to ask a question related to to our kids and the future generation. What values and attribute, attributes should be fostering in our children to design a regenerative future? I think the most important thing is for us as adults 
to get our own shit together, <laughs> like to get our crap together. <laughs> like we've got to be responsible adults. They've got to see what adults look like. This is really important. But also for them, uh, I think what they really need is they need nature connection, mm. the outdoors, experiencing their place, getting to know the plants and animals, developing an ethical relationship to them. Mm-hmm. This is really, really important. Mm-hmm. And also they need to participate. They need to be able to experience the work that they're going to have to do as adults. So for example, one of our goals is that they need to experience landscapes coming back to life. Mm. Like one of our goals as a family is to do large scale reforestation work, to grow forests and to help other people in the area to grow forests. And we want the children to go and gather native seeds We want the children to plant them. We want the children to dig contour swales to capture water. We want the children to see landscapes coming to life. We want them to know it's possible. And on a larger scale, we want to be able to walk dry riverbeds where there used to be rivers 50 years ago. And during their childhood, before they become adults, bring those rivers back to life so that these children know that it's possible to do this. Because what all of the trends show for 20 years from now, 30 years from now, around 2050, is a very difficult, very challenging world. Mm. Those children who grow up believing in the possibility of regenerated landscapes are going to be able to sustain themselves through very hard times. They're also, if they move away from big cities and go to very degraded lands now where there's no economic benefit to be there, they can build up lifestyles that are resilient for 20 years from now. So during the time when it's hardest for people in cities, they will be safer and more secure and they'll have all of the capacities to govern and manage themselves, which is what we need them to do as adults. So they have to have really good social skills, really good abilities to work in groups, very good ecological knowledge of the places where they live, deep emotional commitment to the livelihood of those places, and a fierce belief in a better future that they cannot see because they saw it when their parents did it. And so it's so important for us as the parents to do this for our children to see that it wasn't just that I went from owning a car to riding a bicycle, which my wife and I did 12 years ago. That wasn't enough. When our daughter was born, we got rid of almost all of our stuff and we moved to remote places and we started learning how to do reforestation work because we know that our child needs to see this. She needs to know it's possible because she did it herself because she was part of it. And so this is something that children need. Notice how different this is from sending them to school to get training, to get a college degree so they can get a a good paying job in a city. That is not the future for our children. The future for our children is knowing how to clean water, knowing how to build healthy ecosystems, knowing how to be in community, Mm. knowing how to express themselves through arts and crafts, And of course, knowing math and science and these other things, that's very, very important. But in the context of the ethic of caring for their bioregions, the places that will support their livelihoods. Because what we see, and here we are in Colombia, it's the same way. There are all these campesino families here in the Northern Andes that just cut down the trees and they cultivated crops that were really soil intensive. And now when it rains on the steep slopes, all of the water runs off, heavy erosion takes the last soil away. They're not caring for their place, they're destroying it. Their children won't be able to live here. Mm. So our job, all of us who care about the future, is to give our children an environment, and I mean a social environment, where they experience regeneration in the family, among their friends, in their communities, and in their landscapes. 
And that's what the children need. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Hmm. If we were to adopt bioregionalism and, and regenerative culture by heart, what kind of world would be living in? And what does the day-to-day look like? Or I would love to hear a story or a scenario if you have one to share with us. I'll tell you how my day went today. <laughs> uh, we're camping right now because the housing market here in this little village of Barichara is insane. Because all the people from the city, after a year of being locked up from a pandemic, are trying to buy land in the countryside. And everyone uses Airbnb to rent their houses. So we cannot afford to rent a house in the village during this time. So we're displaced. Luckily, our friends have nine hectares of land. They've been reforesting and they have a campsite for glamping and this community kitchen that we're using and really nice outdoor showers with biofiltration of the water. So like us being homeless is actually kind of awesome because we're camping in this beautiful place. So my day started by crawling out of the tent at 5.30 in the morning, listening to the sound of a swarm of bees so loud I couldn't sleep because they were completely filling the canopy of this giant tree above our heads. Because there are probably 3,000 flowers on that tree and every flower is attracting bees. So there were thousands and thousands of bees buzzing above our tent and it woke me up. That was my alarm clock. Aww. And then I got up and made some coffee while it was still dark, drank some nice warm coffee watching the sunrise. And then I went and laid in the grass with that beautiful mountain view that you saw when we started our call. And I did an hour of stretching of deep stretching, connecting to my body and connecting to the place. And then we had breakfast together as a family. And then we hiked up the mountain to the town, which was about a 15 or 20 minute walk. We celebrated that our four-year-old daughter could walk the entire way up the steep hill by taking a goofy picture of our family making silly faces. And then I spent the morning with a pickaxe and a trowel digging a retention channel to hold water to start building a food forest. And I spent some time pulling grass because there's an invasive type of grass here that doesn't allow the native bushes to take hold. And I spent some time pruning a tree that we're doing a chop and drop method of dropping it in the ground, a big pile to make soil. And I did that while my daughter was gathered with a group of families learning how to bake cookies. Because all of our families (laughs) are doing a little workshops together to teach each other life skills. And so you see like, The rhythm of our day is very human. We have time to relax, time to be a family, time to connect with nature, time for ourselves. And we give to the world. Eventually, we will give more than we receive. Eventually, we will give more to the ecosystems than we take from them. Right now, the ecosystems are so degraded that we don't. But what I want to stress in this is that being regenerative means we feel good. We're healthy and vibrant and alive. So to be in this regenerative way of living is to do something like, oh, we decided to live in a human scale and a human rhythm where my wife and I can pretty much always be with our daughter when she's young. She's four years old now, Mm -hmm. and she's had both parents full-time stay at home because our home is in a rainforest in Costa Rica where we were for a year. We're now in this semi-desert landscape of the northern Andes. And our life is to learn how to connect to this place, to fall in love with it, become intimate with it, and learn how to care for it, and then get everything that we need from the land by being in community with a variety of arts and crafts people who know how to build things, that know how to grow things, know how to cook things. And our life is beautiful. It's really so much better than at any time before. And the more that we go into this way of living, the more we feel like humans Mm -hmm. instead of weird distorted beasts in a toxic place that's not right for us, which is how we felt for so long before we did this. Yeah, this is this is like a really heartwarming story. And yeah, I really appreciate this day. It's yeah, it sounds lovely. Yeah. Yeah, all the connections and relationships that we have is, is what matters the most eventually. 
Before we finish this episode, I'd like to ask a few questions to our listeners as a bit of a check-in to see how we are each relating to the place we are living. Think about this. Do you know what soil series you're standing on? Can you name five edible plants in your region and their seasons of availability? Where does your garbage go? What are your primary substance techniques and what were the primary substances techniques of the culture that lived in the area before you? Can you name five resident and five migratory birds in your area? And where does your stormwater drain run to? Maybe you know all of the answers to these questions or maybe there's an awkward silence or you're simply embracing the silent pause. I invite you to think about these and your relationship to your region. If you'd like to hear more about this concept, I highly recommend you to check out earth-regenerators.mn.co. Joe, thank you for being so generous with your time. It was a great conversation. Thank you. It's lovely to get to connect with you from the other side of the planet. (laughs) (laughs) That was great. Thank you. For this episode, I would like to thank you, the Bonnie Paris, for editing the script and Taylor Cohen for his all support. I'm Denise Yildiz and thank you for listening. Come into the world, my child. Awaken to life, my child. Life is good, you will see. Come into the world, my child.